six hundred and four into the Bible. There should be a Bible around you called the Holy Bible. It's green. You should be able to find it. Six oh four. We're going to be in Psalm one hundred this morning. We're in the middle of a series that's entitled "More." Uh, midweek, um, we are meeting at various locations at various times. Um, praying through the topic of more, because as a church, we want to have more of good things. And so last week, we looked at more kindness and more goodness, and that informed the prayer groups over the week. Now, this week, we have prayer groups scattered across Bournemouth, Christchurch, and Poole, and if you would like to attend one of those, pick up a book here that says 50 Days of Prayer, and you have people's personal information and their name, their address, and what time you can attend their house for a free cup of coffee, and there'll be time for prayer. Now this week we're looking at more joy, more joy. And we're going to be taking our um, reading or our sermon from Psalm 100. And let me read this to you, Psalm 100, page 604. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. So, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. This was a psalm written by a guy called David. He was a king, king over Israel. Um, And it is said to be the only explicit psalm of praise uh, in the book of Psalms. Uh, So much so that ancient church history used to say of Psalm 100, let's sing the hundredth. Let's sing the hundredth, they would say of this psalm, because it was an explicit psalm of praise. Now, the sermon this morning is entitled More Joy, and we're going to draw some uh, principles here from Psalm 100. Uh, but what the, f- the flow of the sermon is going to be something like this. Well, if we want more of something, we need to understand what it is we want more of. So the first point is this. What is joy? How do we define it? Once we do that, we're going to understand why we want more of it. In fact, if we do, perhaps you don't want more of joy. You're happy to live life as grumpy as you have the freedom to do so. That might be you. You're still welcome, but avoid me at the end. (laughs) Thirdly, we're going to discover how we get more of joy. Fourthly, we're going to recognize when we've got joy. So how do I know? What is the litmus test to know that I have joy in my life? And then fifthly, we're going to close off with, well, how do I hold on to it once I have it? How do I hold on to it? Well, first of all, then, what is joy? Let's establish that. Really interesting. I did some research over the last week or two and asked people uh, what joy is, and I got some responses back. If your response came in after midnight on Friday, it's not going to be used in the sermon today. Um, No names mentioned Martin Yelling. Uh, So, what is joy? Well, some person said this, joy is defined for me as overwhelming happiness. It could be selfish or selfless, as in you could do something to bring joy to yourself, or you can find it in other things, okay? Another person said, the world looks better when you're being loved, so I guess joy comes from being loved. Still another, it's a state of happiness and contentment whereby you're enthusiastic and overwhelmed. Another said it's about utter happiness and deep abiding. 
Someone even went as far as this, saying it's feeling completely content and at peace, and it's Southampton winning a football match. <laughs> That's a very joyless person in recent history. Um, another person said, if another person is happy, then I am. Particularly if it's somebody I love, that brings me joy. Still another, and finally, watching other people be successful or achieving the seemingly impossible. What's interesting about joy is that we all have our own nuanced definition of it. I did a coffee tasting one morning a while back, and um, we had to smell these smelling things to find out you know, what the flavor they're putting in the coffee. And everyone was smelling, I know what that is. I, just, I, just, I don't know what it is, but I, I've smelt it before. Then he says, well, that's licorice. Of course it's licorice. You know. But to the untrained palate, it's hard to put those two things together. And so I find it is the same with joy. We struggle to, to, to define what joy is, although we can describe its effects. I know what I feel like when I feel joy, but I don't really know what joy is. Personally, I think, before I get onto my definition, what we'll use this morning, I think Christians and others probably try and separate the words joy and happiness, don't we? Joy is something deeper and happiness is something perhaps an effect of that. But actually, you see in the Bible, the Bible uses the same word for both. Joy, blessedness, happiness, they're all interchangeable. And whilst we all know what it's like to feel happiness and joy and to be blessed, the truth is actually, we don't feel that often, do we? And so when we do feel it, we try and make more of it because we don't know when it's going to come again. And I don't think it's that we don't feel happy in our current cultural society, but I just don't think we feel much at all these days. And so we, have a, we go around and we're kind of numb. It's easy to be numb to things. Because we're so overwhelmed with our senses that when we feel something, it's easy to push it to one side. So perhaps we don't have as much joy as we would like because we're shut down from most things. And we don't take time to enjoy anything or savor anything. We're more concerned with taking photos of our food than enjoying the taste of it. We're more concerned with taking photographs of the scenery rather than taking it in and enjoying it. We're more concerned with the kettle going to boiling point within seconds because we need to have our drink now than just being patient about it. So for, for, for sake of this sermon this morning, and hopefully therefore forevermore, I will define joy as something like this. It's a byproduct of being full. Joy is a byproduct of being full. See, happiness or joy is something we experience when we are full. Sometimes it's full of gratitude, full of encouragement, full of food, full of goodness, full of praise. It's the byproduct of being full. You might enjoy your relationship and have great joy in your relationship because your relationship makes you feel full and content. After a great meal, you'll feel happy because I can't eat anymore. That was amazing. Praise the Lord for a good meal. You might have joy in your kids because the way they've turned out is full and so you experience joy and happiness with them. So for the sake of this sermon, I want you to know that, that joy is this. It is the byproduct of being full. And very, very carefully listen to this. Joy or happiness is not the effect, uh, sorry, joy or happiness is the effect and not the cause. So my question to you very simply then is, are you full? Your life or a particular area of it? Are you full? Do you, do you right now, could you 
chant with church history and say, I'm ready to sing the hundredth. Or you say, well, I'm quite happy to murmur the hundredth, but I'm not quite ready to sing it. Well, that's what joy is. Well, let's understand then, why do we want more of it? Why a sermon on joy? See, folks, we're all in the pursuit of happiness, aren't we? But, but why? Have you heard these phrases before, particularly in a conversation or a dialogue where you don't agree with someone else's decision? As long as they are happy. As long as they are happy, a common phrase that we use. The UN seems to be concerned with happiness because they release a periodic report. It's the happiness chart of countries that are most and least happiest. And apparently, folks, you wouldn't tell it by looking at your faces this morning, but Great Britain are 15th. Thank you very much. I would be concerned. If, if, if Britain is 15th, imagine what it's like walking down the streets of the country who's 50th or 100th. Goodness gracious. We're constantly desiring to be happy and full and joyful. We write reports about it. Our, our politics want us to be happy, so we would vote for them. I mean, look at some of the biggest selling books of 2019. The Art of Happiness by the Dalai Lama, by Dr. Howard Culp. Cutler, he offers a series of meditations and conversations and stories and interviews uh, uh, and stories from his interviews with the Lama himself and provides a, this, uh, this does not sound very happy at all, does it? He provides a systematic approach to happiness. Wow. If we need another blog that says eight tips on how to be happy. 10% Happier by Dan Harris. Ha Harris describes with deep insight and enormous humor how he tamed the voice inside his head. He reduced, listen to this, he reduced stress without losing his edge. Come on. And he found self-help that actually works through the practice of meditation. Here's one more for you. Eckhart Tolle, you may have come across some of his stuff in The Power of Now. For him, how to be happier and live at peace is only possible, he says, when we break free from our egocentric minds and we live fully in the present, live fully in the now. We sell books about it. Our advice to people is as long as you're happy. But why do we want more of it? Well, practically, happiness is said to have positive effects on us as human beings. In a journal report on happiness released not long ago, they said that actually happiness has increased benefits on your health because the more happy you are, that you're less likely to get illness. And in the same journal report, it also mentioned that happier people are better for the organizations and institutions that they work for because they are more productive, they're more inclined to make more money, and it's good for the institution. Happy people are said to be more generous and more creative because they see the bigger picture. And happier people, accordingly, are said to have better relationships, more likely to get married, and more likely to have friends. So from that list, then, there's surely more reason to be happy and pursue it, right? I mean, after all, Jesus says in John 10.10, he wants to have life and life in all of its fullness. So, maybe I should reorient my life to pursue happiness as the most important thing. But I would say to you, don't do that. Because the truth is, happiness is an effect and not a cause. If I want to be, if I want to have a better family unit with my wife and three kids, 
How do I go about that? Do I pursue being a family or do I go about pursuing time with my family, the cause, with the effects of us feeling more like a family unit? If I want to coach football and we want to win our games, do I coach all about scoring the goal or do I go about pursuing the fundamental principles of coaching and if we do those things, more likely we are going to score goals? If I have a sales target to hit, do I think all about my target or do I model the right behaviors and attributes? And if I do that more often than not, the targets will look after themselves. If I'm single and want to pursue a spouse, do I just go running after people or do I focus on being a person of good character, which is more likely to attract somebody I want to attract? If I want to pursue humility, do I focus on humility? Well, that's just silly because then you'll be thinking about yourself, which is the opposite of humility. Or do I go about serving other people and the effects of that will be thinking about myself less and therefore I'll be more humble. And finally, if I'm a teacher and I want to pursue a well-behaved school class, do I just pursue you're going to be well-behaved or do I go about planning the class in such a way so that the children are engaged? Contemporary psychology will tell us that people don't experience high levels of happiness in life because we are so fixed on the outcome. And with the folks, we cannot control the outcome but we can do something about the process. You have no authority over the interviewer's reaction to your presentation, but you can control how you prepare. And if your confidence is in your preparation and not the outcome, you will be happier. But if you chase after the effect, you will be like chasing after the wind. You will be one step behind. Many person has pursued an effect to such an extent as to suffocate any potential for attaining the very thing that they're pursuing. Like my daughter's comforter, Teddy. She's had it since she's one years old. It started out as a beautiful, immaculate Teddy. But she has loved it and nibbled at it and strangled at it for six years. That it's now more a prop for a horror film than it is for a comforter for a young child. We can pursue something so much with a beautiful heart at the beginning, only to become distorted when that feeling of fullness doesn't arrive because, folks, we're chasing after the wind. If you want to find your life, Jesus says, you need to let go. If you want to lose your life, then you must hold on to it. So, should I chase after happiness? I don't think so. Happiness will come as a byproduct of something else. It's an effect, not a cause. So thirdly then, how do I get hold of this joy or happiness that you say, Matthew? I'm glad you asked me, because it's our next point. If a child is hungry, you'd probably recommend them to have a sandwich or a meal, a feast. And if you lack joy, I want, to, I want to present you to do the same thing. Go to the bread of life. What you, if you give your child a sugary snack, they might momentarily satisfy them. But in a few hours' time, they're just going to go hungry again. You may get momentary joys from what life offers you. But like a sugary snack, you'll just be wanting more shortly. And you'll probably feel a little bit doughy at the end of the day. Notice the structure of the psalm, and at this point we're going to go into the psalm, because in Psalm 100 verses 1, 2, and 4, 
David, for him, he starts shouting out things and saying things, but we're not going to start there. We're going to start in verses 3 and in verses 5, because this is really interesting. In verses 3, he says, Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Verse 5, For the Lord is good, and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues throughout all generations. You see, for David, for the psalmist, he can shout for joy and sing the hundredth because of something going on deeper inside, something that he believes about the God of the Bible. And there are seven things that he says here, and I'm not going to go into all of them in detail, but seven truths for David as he writes the psalm that causes him opportunity for joy. For him, the Lord is God. So for David, God is the God of the universe. He is the only living true God. He's infinitely perfect, self-existent. He also says that he is his creator. He made us. God made you, he says. He made me, David says. He is our rightful owner, he says. We are his, but also our sovereign ruler. We are his people, David says. David goes on to say that he is our bountiful helper because we are the sheep of his pasture and he looks after us. That this God of the Bible in verse 5 is full of infinite mercy and goodness. That he is truth and he is faithfulness. Folks, what is at the central seat of your belief system will affect your ability to have or lack joy in your life. Because a false or a poor belief will lead to a life of grumpiness, dissatisfaction. Case study. If you fundamentally believe... That all drivers on the road should be courteous and kind and patient all of the time. And you live your life out of that belief system. You will certainly lack joy. Because they are not. If you believe women that all of the time men should be empathetic and compassionate and loving and tender and sweet all of the time. You will live a life lacking in joy because we are not that way. If you believe that all messages of a political campaign should be objective truth without any hidden agenda to persuade your vote, guess what? If that's your belief system, you will certainly lack joy. If you believe fundamentally that you are the most important person in the world and life is all about you, then you will certainly lack joy when you go into the workplace and realize that ain't truth. It is the pursuit of the right belief system that brings us joy. Now folks, don't mishear me. Feeling joyful or having happiness isn't exclusive for the Christian. There is plenty of joy to be had in the world and many many people experience it. But I would say to that person, how everlasting is that joy? Like a sugary snack, where will that joy be in the difficult times of life? Many a person have tried to be happy without God, but I believe they will only truly learn to find their happiness once they choose to be able to say things like David says, I believe in the God of the Bible. Joy has nothing to do with our experiences, I would argue. It has everything to do with our faith, because joy can be experienced despite our circumstances. Paul in the New Testament described himself as having everything So he described himself as having nothing, yet possessing everything. You may not have joy 
because on the tablet of your heart, on the stone of your life, your fundamental belief system just doesn't allow it. It doesn't reconcile with the world that you live in. And here we have the psalmist going, you know what, I have found someone who made me, who loves me, who created me, and because of that, man, I can sing the hundredth. So, with that in mind, how do we know when we've got it? How can we recognize when we've got joy? Well, firstly, it should do something to our face. We should make us smile. You can laugh. It's okay. It's a sermon about joy. Please feel free to interact with me. Um, But let us consider David's outward joyful praise in Psalm 100. I mean, it's incredible. Shout for joy. I mean, that's literally... Ah, you know, come on. Not just himself, but all the earth. Shout, worship the Lord. Come before him. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks. There is just this crescendo of shout and shout and sing and sing. Out of the concrete belief system that David has, he is literally able to shout for joy. The man has joy. That should be a sort of hashtag. The man has joy. And there's something to be said for an out loud praise of the Lord, which tells us whether we have it or not. You see, the fair beauty of the Lord is revealed during our worship. And what's really interesting at this point, and I struggled with this as a non-Christian for a while, because not only does David willingly praise, what we find in the New Testament and in other places, God doesn't just want us to praise because we should delight to do so, but he also commands us to do it. He commands us to praise, and that strikes me as rather odd. Would the author of a book command the reader to praise him for writing it? Should the coach command the players to praise them for coaching them on a Saturday morning? But what we see in the Old Testament is that God commands his people to sacrifice And we see in the New Testament, God commanding his people to belong to and to attend church and be part of a church community. But why does God doing this as the lawgiver? Why does he do this? You see, God doesn't need or crave our worship in the sense where he is lacking. Because if God did indeed need to do that, he wouldn't come to me or you. That would be like the author going to to a dog for a reassuring bark that the book was good. God wouldn't need to do that. But you see, what God does, he is so kind and generous that by commanding us to praise, and by the act of us doing that, God is meeting with us. It's not that we need him, but God reveals himself to us when we praise him. Our faith is reaffirmed, reestablished, made alive again in the process of praise and audible joy. Not because we're conjuring something up, but because God is meeting with us. And folks, the world is filled with praise, isn't it? Readers with books, film people with their films, walkers in the countryside, sport, wine, travel, children, rare stamps. You see, the most balanced minds are able to praise more. And why is that? Because outward praise is inner health made audible. Outward praise is inner health made audible. You see, when David is shouting out the praise of God, he's just displaying his inner health.
And the psalmist is telling us to do, shout for joy, all the earth. He is telling us to do something that instinctively all men, all women have done throughout time, which is to spontaneously praise something that we delight in or we're passionate about. And why do we do that? Because we value it. Oh, I love this because I value it so much. One person says that we praise because it completes our enjoyment of something. In other words, it's the appointed consummation of the event. A delight is incomplete if it is not expressed. A delight is incomplete if it is not expressed. Folks, baptism, salvation in Christ is incomplete if we don't express it in baptism and tell the world, shout for joy, Jesus Christ of Nazareth is alive. And so we're going to go into the waters and we're going to come out and we're going to express that. We're going to have consummation of this event. That Jesus is who he says he is and I believe it for myself. To not do that is, to have, is, is, is something is incomplete. It's like hearing a good joke and having no one to share it with. Watching a sports game and your team's winning but no one to tell it about. Hitting the perfect golf shot and no one to watch it. Driving down the road, traveling through, uni- through Europe stump- you know, with your friends in the car, taking a-, a wrong turn but coming across a wonderful view. But your friends couldn't care less for the litter in the road than they can for the view and you just want to share it with them. Folks, we complete our enjoyment of something when we express it. People that we love want to hear us tell them what? That we love them. They may know it from your commitment in life. You've paid for the bills, 20 years of marriage. You've emptied the dishwasher faithfully. You've cut that grass on time. You were there for the kids. But if you have not told the person that you love that I love you, you know the effect it has on someone? Some of you have never felt that from a parent. And whilst you can logically conclude that they've loved you through the actions, because they haven't expressed it to you, it's left an effect on your life. Folks, The tuning up of an orchestra, if you came here early and heard these guys singing, if you are musically inclined, the tuning up of the orchestra that sometimes can feel like duty, that can sometimes feel like duty, turns into delight by the person who knows what it's going to be like when they're finished. You can enjoy the tuning up of an orchestra if you know what the symphony is going to sound like. It's like digging tunnels in a city because you know that one day water is going to come and you do it faithfully. Yes, it might be out of duty because you've been told to do it, but you know the water's going to come and you see trickles of it now and then. We complete our duty of praise because as Christians, we are waiting for the final symphony. Oh, You know, C.S. Lewis says that 99.9%, this will really discourage you, 99.9% of all worship events are probably like out of kilter, out of sync. Our hearts aren't right because there was one day where it will be 100% right. And that symphony will play for a thousand years and we will be singing praise to the God in heaven and it will be so beautiful. And the water will be flowing, there'll be rivers of living water and we will dance and sing and we will splash and we will swim and we will be full of the joy of the Lord. If that does not send shivers down your spine, folks, I'm not sure what will. Because heaven is a state of perpetual employment of praising God. It is a state of joy forever and ever. 
That is why we sing the hundredth. So, what is joy? It's feeling full. Do we want more of it? Well, we do, but we shouldn't chase after the effect. We should go for the cause. How do we get more of it? Well, we've got to sort out our belief system. How do we recognize when we've got it? When's the last time you told God you loved him out loud? But finally, how do I hold on to it? In his book, Excellencies of Christ, Jonathan Edwards, uh, an American theologian, points out some paradoxical truths, opposite truths about Jesus, and he writes about them in a really wonderful way. Um, So he says Jesus is both the Lion of Judah, but he's also the Lamb of God. Well, how can he be Lion and Lamb? And he unpacks that. He unpacks the idea that Jesus is full of justice, but he's also full of grace. Well, you know, how can I be forgiven if I'm deserving certain things? He unpacks that, and he unpacks things like Jesus had an exceeding spirit of obedience. However, he has supreme dominion over heaven and earth, so why did he subject? Anyway, he kind of pulls these things together, and I would like to propose another one. That Jesus is both eternally full, but was at one stage eternally empty. Eternally full. Jesus says in John chapter 10, that I and the Father are one. Father, in John 17, Father, just as you are in me, I am in you. So we get this sense with Jesus that here was this eternal fulfillment with the, God, with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. There was this oneness and this perfect joy and perfect community. But then we also read in Hebrews 12, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, he scorned its shame, and he sat down on the right hand of the throne of God. And in Isaiah 53, which depicts the whole idea of the suffering servant, it says this, after all of this, after all that Jesus would have suffered, he will see and be satisfied. So, so if Jesus is eternally full, right, why was it the joy that took him to the cross? Does that assume that he had lacking in joy? And why did he look from the cross and was satisfied? Does that see in some regard he actually wasn't satisfied? In 1 Timothy 4, it says about Jesus, he wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for many. Folks, don't you see this? You are the joy of Christ. You are the apple of his eye. Jesus is in love with you. And whilst he was perfectly full in his Trinitarian state, there was still something lacking. You. And that's why in Zephaniah 3 it says, The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you with singing. Folks, Jesus Christ is singing the hundredth over you every day. And if you can lay hold of that truth, that never-changing truth, you will hold on to it and you will sing the hundredth back. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we want to thank you so much that you sing over us, that we can have more joy because of your disposition towards us. Jesus, I want to thank you that the Bible is clear that we are the apple of your eye, that you love us, that you care for us, and that you desire that all men would be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So Lord, I pray by your spirit 
You would even fall now and reveal to our belief systems that are causing us to live a life without joy, without contentment, without blessedness. Because, Lord, we're basing our fundamental beliefs on sandy stuff, on sugary snacks that will just come and go and crumble. Or would you do that work in us this morning by sending your Holy Spirit to us, Lord Jesus? And I would ask, Lord God, that as a congregation, we would sing like we've never sung before. We would shout for joy as we respond in singing. We would literally raise the roof because we know that one day that final symphony will be sound, the waters will come, and there will be a perfect place of perpetual employment of praise to you. But until that day, we do the best we can, Lord, with what little we have. And yes, Lord, we're out of tune. We make mistakes. But Jesus, you don't judge us by that. Father, you judge us by the righteousness given to us through the cross. And so we are going to sing the hundredth like we've never done before, Lord. To your end, we pray this. Amen.